Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this very special event as part of the RSA's ongoing uh, series of online lectures, talks and discussions during this very difficult and challenging time that we find ourselves going through. As an organisation committed to enlightenment thinking and new ideas, we're uh, very keen to use these this time of, of challenge as a space to look at the new approaches we could be taking to try and emerge from this uh, difficult situation into a better world on the other side. So my name's Jamie Cook. I'm head of RSA Scotland and lead in our activity up there. And I'm delighted and honoured that today we're joined by Sandrine dixon Declave, co-president of the Club of Rome. Uh, now, we were very lucky earlier this year, to, or end of last year, to have Sundrine deliver the Angus Miller Lecture, our big annual conference in Scotland, uh, where she started to explore a lot of very key issues around a new and developing economy, the climate emergency we find ourselves in, and a number of the trends around work and uh, automation that we might see coming out of this. And I think this is a really great opportunity for us to tap into your expertise, Sundrine, uh, and to really explore some of those ideas that we're we're coming forward with. So I'm conscious you're an incredibly busy person at the best of times, let alone in these challenging situations we're in now. So we're very grateful that you've been able to take the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Jamie, and it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. Well, I thought really just as, as a way to start off, it'd be great just to have a, a thought from you on the situation we do find ourselves in just now. We were reflecting just before we started on how difficult and busy the time is and how much time we're all spending on Zoom and other platforms. Uh, so I wondered if you could just set, set the scene for us and what life feels like just now for you. I think, I think life for me and so many people feels incredibly surreal. Um, obviously, I find myself in, in a very um, reflective position, but also with a great deal of anger because the Club of Rome for the last 50 years has, has been speaking about the limits to growth. And in fact, already in September of last year, we brought forward even the most recent thinking through our planetary emergency plan. And when I look at all of the warnings that we had in our planetary emergency plan, which was looking at the need to balance people, planet and prosperity together, I see that now within the COVID crisis, basically it's symptomatic of exactly that disconnect between people, planet and prosperity. So although I'm one of the lucky ones in the sense that no one from my family or my closest friends have been hit by COVID, I have a garden, um, I, I have a roof over my head, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for being able to be in a very resilient environment. I really bleed for all of those vulnerable people across the globe, in particular those that are the poorest and the most diminished in our societies who are getting hit, hit head on by this COVID crisis. And in particular, also in countries where the right measures were not put in place at the right time. And also perverse narcissism has seemed to creep in rather than a real sense of responsibility for people. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a really powerful summing up. And I, and I think that anger perhaps is something that we'll, we'll see develop further as this crisis develops and hopefully starts to move into an emergence uh, phase. Because I think at this stage, we've maybe been quite consumed by the the reactions and the survivals and the, the, the chaos of it. Um, but I think it's really interesting, as you say, that a lot of these issues that we're seeing arise 
are not new ones. They're being very highlighted and, and sharply put into focus by COVID. But actually, this insecurity, this inequality, obviously the huge issues we face around the climate, uh, you and others uh, have been talking about for, for quite some time. Are you finding that because of this crisis, there is a, a more open response or more interest or more openness to discussing those ideas? Or are you finding that we're at the stage just now where the immediacy of the crisis is maybe can you know, taking away the scope of, of looking to the future for people? Well, since we last saw each other and, and because of COVID, um, ourselves and the Planetary Emergency Partnership that, that I'm leading along with the Potsdam Institute and a few others, We've brought together actually 170 partners and where we've come together is around a very core message, which is we cannot actually in the COVID exit plans, in our recovery plans and stimulus fiscal plans, move into a business as usual stance. So we cannot forget that, again, this is the convergence of a series of tipping points. And if we truly want to first emerge resilient and then build the right resilience into our systems, we're going to have to think and act and put in place different structures that we've had in the past. So that has been actually our message in an open letter where we first actually published it in, in several as, as an op-ed coming from members of the Club of Rome, including myself, which was then published in a series of newspapers already in, in March. From there, we built into that narrative some very key outreach principles, first for the European Commission and the European community as they were looking at their new recovery discussions quite carefully and thinking about the link with the Green New Deal. Um, the European Green Deal has been pushed back by some of the Central and Eastern European countries who say this is not the time to be thinking about the environment. This is not the time to be thinking about climate. We can't put in place a transition plan that moves in that direction and at the same time save our oil, gas, aviation, all those industries that are so important for our economy. And what we're saying is Yes, those industries are important for the economy if they don't exacerbate the economy in terms of moving towards a low carbon decarbonization uh, pathway, but also if they put people first, employment first, not shareholders first. And I think that is actually fundamental. That letter then was translated in a direct message to the G20 saying very much the same thing when they brought together the finance ministers from the G20 countries. And what I'd like to say is that the response that we've received from some governments, because we've spoken directly with Merkel and others, has been unbelievably positive, which is, yes, you're right. We do need to think about that. Now, the question is, how do we go from thinking in the short term as to how we get out of this crisis and ensuring that we put in place the right mechanisms to create the right long-term resilience structures? And it is complex and it is tricky, but we have many of those solutions already to, at hand. Excellent. And I've been really struck that in the midst of this crisis, we have seen a lot of those positive discussions. So, you know, the RSA, we've been talking about bridges to the future. What do we need to do now? But how do we look ahead? And as we've discussed, and as anyone who knows me, I'm I'm very interested in, in concepts such as basic income, which has suddenly rocketed as a as a policy idea in, in many parts of the world. And perhaps we can we can discuss a little bit later on. But we've also seen work people like Catherine Trebek at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance talking about building back better. Uh, your own uh, discussion 
discussions around emergence from emergency, which I know you had been using prior to this particular emergency uh, as well. And there are a number of mechanisms and, and opportunities there. What do you think are the, the characteristics that we should be looking for for this new world that we could be creating? You've talked about people, planet and prosperity. It's felt to me that the responses from certain countries, you talked about narcissism earlier, and I think we could all think of a few international leaders who perhaps would uh, would very much fit into that characterization. But it has felt quite a difference between perhaps some nations that have tried to focus on the impact on people first and foremost, uh, and those which maybe have started to put prosperity in the economy uh, as being seen as the, the key drivers or the key priorities to focus on. I just wonder what kind of characteristics of this new uh, world that we should be creating do you think are the core elements that really help us to balance those three uh, layers together? Very good questions. And yes, the emergence from emergency is really our, our overarching narrative. And, and within that emergence, I think we really need to think deeply, exactly as you say, what are those structures then that we need now in order to make sure that that happens? I'd like to maybe just add in before I go into that, the fact that what we've noticed, we need to take the learnings from this crisis as well. Coming at this now with a series of brand new proposals that don't take into consideration the immediacy of securing people's lives, livelihood, the issues around health infrastructure would be ludicrous. So one of the first responses I have to that question is we as responsible human beings need to remember that right now we do need to put people first rather than necessarily planet. When we're bridging that gap between what we're living today and how we get people on the journey. But however, we all know that you cannot have well-being amongst people if you don't have a healthy planet. So healthy planet for healthy people is actually what we need. And in order to do that, I think the key mechanisms obviously have to be across the different core systems. So we need to shift our economic system so that we take perversities out of the market. That needs to be one of the core. We always talk about new mechanisms, but what about getting rid of all those perverse subsidies, whether they be on fossil energy or whether they be on agriculture, stimulating the right, the wrong type of agriculture and the wrong type of energy investment rather than the right, which is more regenerative in scope and also based on renewables or decarbonization. So get the perversities out of the market, put in place the right taxation structures to ensure that externalities are costed in our economy, which is not happening for the moment. I think one of also the core learnings from this crisis has been we have totally undervalued the most essential parts of our societies. The jobs actually that are the most important now, the health workers, the doctors, the teachers, the grocery store workers, the police, to some degree, if they do their job properly and responsibly to maintain law and order, but also the garbage collectors, all of these jobs, which actually have not been given a premium in the past. The premium has always been on those jobs that are predominantly linked to financial institutions, to shareholders, to those actually, they're not directly linked to people and real values in our society. And that is what is very disturbing. Universal basic income is part of that. It starts to actually create equity across the system. The only problem we have, Jamie, is how much 
How do we distribute? Does this create complacency? And I think that's important. We need to have a working economy. And I would even say that people, all of us, if we have the right jobs and if we're stimulated, it's much better if we're working and active and part of the economy and counted as part of the economy, whether it be in the arts, by the way, in the sciences, or in the more structural elements of our economy, than actually just getting a salary. And I think it's really important that we think about this. Also, because I'll make my last point, and that is one thing that is completely overlooked when we talk about going back to business as usual. First of all, we know that the functionality of a 20th century economy is no longer there. We know that we have the first generation, which will actually make less than its parents. We know that we have the highest rate of suicide. We know that we have the highest rate of mental disorder, especially in northern countries in the West. So you cannot tell me that this is an economy that right now is making people very happy and very well. I completely agree. And I think, as I say, we many of us have been speaking about that, but I think it's it's horrifying in many ways to see the reality of that being hammered home. Uh, and I think you're quite right. And for me, this has highlighted a lot of the, the political hypocrisy that we've seen. So the fact, as you mentioned, that you know, a few months ago, we were talking about unskilled workers who would be, you know, banned from the UK because they they didn't offer enough to the the country. And now we're we're flying some of those supposedly unskilled workers in to pick fruit and to help keep things functioning. We're seeing those carers, those uh, workers in the front lines, putting their lives at risk in order to keep uh, society functioning, to care for others, and yet still not being valued in that. And I think for me. That has to be one of the big challenges that that we bring out of this is what do we value? What is considered worthwhile and creative and positive contributions um, to society as as we move forward? I think one of the things that's really struck me um, as well, though, is and maybe this partly fits into some of the previous discussions around um, around climate change and the Green New Deal. We've heard some of the the negatives during this. So the people who have been going to parks or have been, you know, protesting in the US about the right to avoid uh, social distancing uh, and so on. But my feeling, I'd I'd be interested to know if you've uh, had a similar or different perspective, is actually the vast majority of people across most countries have actually very quickly uh, accepted very significant limitations on their lives. We're working from home. We're not traveling. We're not entertaining or, or meeting up with loved ones. Uh, actually, in most cases, thankfully, not because we ourselves uh, are at direct significant risk, but actually this is because we are looking to protect people in society who are in a more vulnerable position for me. And I think it has really fundamentally shown that there is that empathy and that willingness to, to do things for other people albeit it requires sometimes a crisis to make that uh, happen. And I wonder, how do we capture that empathy, that that willingness to look at the impact on others and really harness that for issues like climate change that do require us to look beyond simply ourselves and look to the greater good uh, and the impact on people who we may never meet uh, in our own lives. So I I completely agree with you. And I I think that what's been so compelling in those images that we see coming from the United States and also the images that we see in the UK is two countries that have really fueled frustration and anger rather than worked with the population as a real leadership um, and, 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 and shown what actually 
we should be doing dur during the crisis and how we should be respecting each other. Um, one of the, the compelling images that I can take from, from the UK is, as you say, the, the sending back of unskilled workers. Well, all of those doctors and nurses that actually stayed are predominantly brown, um, yellow, have different faces, different cultures, and, and don't necessarily represent a traditional UK or English face. And, and I think that obviously is, is demonstrating that the, the migration in the UK has worked and that there's migrants who are very actively involved and who want to stay involved in the UK economy and work to service people in the UK. The other you see in the United States is the fact that actually it's the most vulnerable. 75% of the deaths have been African-Americans or Hispanics, also in states where actually they're not heavily represented. So it, it also demonstrates the vulnerability. And what I often say is this is where we need to move from the ego system to the ecosystem, putting away the me, myself, and I for people at the center, because we are as vulnerable as the weakest link. And to claim and to think that we can be more powerful by actually pushing certain people away, certain cultures away, is absolutely fundamentally shown that it's wrong in this crisis. Wrong because it has only exacerbated the situation and made our entire population more vulnerable. Also, the standoff in the United States, as you've seen, between those trucks of people flying the American flag, between them and the health workers. I found that phenomenal to see health workers standing in front of a truck and saying, you are not going to move forward and demonstrating that they are there to ensure the resilience of the society. So those for me are two images that I hope will be deeply ingrained in the consciousness of people when we come out of COVID. And, and clearly this is where we need to understand behavioral change, right? Um, you know, we know that post-war, post-pandemics in the past, for several months, maybe a couple of years, we don't go back to business as usual. I think COVID will not allow us to go back to business as usual because we keep on talking about the fact that we may have another pandemic in the winter. And in my field, I can already tell you that I have all my international gatherings. Every single gathering that is more than 20 people has been canceled all the way through to 2021. So, and that is predominantly because governments have indicated that that's the way it should be. So, so we are seeing a massive shift in the way in which we're going to talk to each other, do business, negotiate. Every single aspect of the way in which we engage will shift the way we are in our communities as well as the way we are engaging internationally. And, and I think that's really important. But I think even more important in that is to take into consideration that we've seen two things where this has proven wrong, the climate skeptics, the deniers, and those that say that business as usual has to continue because it's too difficult to change. And that comes back to behavioral change. We've seen massive transformation in our society in the space of a couple of months where we've all been told to do things totally differently. And as you say, most people are respecting it. We've seen massive buyback from nature where nature has come back saying, 
Oh, thank you. We now have our ownership again. We're the ones that should be ruling, not you, because you are with your big boots all over the place and forgetting that actually we should be existing together. And then we have also seen incredible mutations of our systems, our socio economic system, the way our governance system, the way in which we look at our financial system, the way in which we're shifting capital, the way in which we're building out a, a change and flexibility within bureaucracies and getting out red tape so that we can immediately get masks and we can immediately look at the virus and collaborate between labs, etc. So that for me are signals that we can go much faster than we think and that people are ready to follow if it makes sense. And therefore, it's the leaders that have to show that coming out of COVID, we have done this. We've been stronger now coming out. We're more resilient. And we need to now build that into our economies, our financial structures, in order to ensure that we won't have future crises. Absolutely. And I mean, for me, I, I feel... As you quite rightly said, people are the starting point. There's, there is this element of survival, but we have to move beyond simply surviving to thriving. And the way we do that is through, as you say, people, planet, a, a true prosperity that, that everyone can can share. And I think it really as well as you've touched on there has, I, I was talking about this with my, my wife earlier today, it's really shown up the different styles and approaches to leadership that we are both blessed and cursed with um, on, on a world scale just now. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, I'm not sure to what extent we, we can fully you know take this as proven, but it's interesting that we're seeing some incredible leadership from some of our uh, women leaders around the world. Uh, well, in Scotland as well, yes. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, th I think the, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has been fantastic. Jacinda Ardern, I think, in New Zealand has has become yes. a global superstar already with, with much of our handling of previous crises. Uh, but also Angela Merkel, I think, approaching in a, in a different style. But it really feels to me that it's been a lot about honesty. It's been a lot about empathy, about humanity. Uh, you may not have seen today, but um, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland gave a fantastic interview about the impact that this crisis is having on her mental health and well-being as a leader, that she sometimes cries at the enormity of what she's dealing with. And I think it's such an honest and human response uh, that it, it's very positive and people are rallying to that, I think, as opposed to the narcissistic approaches that we're seeing in, in other contexts. Um, and I think how we harness that approach to leadership, how we use that to maybe revitalize democracy, because we're also seeing the, the counter to that. We're seeing the, the grabbing of power in Hungary, for example, and in many other places where surveillance or security is being used as an opportunity to push things forward that also become harder to, to take back. And I suppose how we, we capture that international, multinational um cooperative approach to leadership is going to be a critical role. Now, obviously, from the Club of Rome, you've you've made a number of, of very critical policy recommendations. And as you said earlier, having a, a positive response from that. Um, how do you see bringing those global organisations together in a way that we can help to drive and foster that positive leadership approach that, that actually brings the rest of society with us uh, and maybe starts to value the role of expertise again, which has taken a bit of a hammering maybe over recent years? So I think there are three. There are very. Um, there are a few elements. Sorry to to that. The the first is that what I see, for example, in the artist community, um, if you look at the immediate response to the pullout of the World Health Organization, and the way in which um, different parts of the arts got together in the United States and also in Europe 
to do these two concerts that we saw last weekend. That for me was a bit of a in your face to Trump as he pulled out from the World Health Organization. And it didn't come from the states. And I think it's important to remember that leadership, and we did see this in the Paris Agreement, right? The big knowledge builder that we had coming out of Paris was that the Paris Agreement was an agreement because it had the pressure of non-state actors and the commitments that came from non-state actors, and also the willingness of state actors to be real leaders. And interestingly enough, very rarely do we speak about what really happened in Paris. We see the gavel, we see the fact that, and we often speak about the fact that the, the Europeans, and in particular the French, were incredible in their negotiations prior to the Paris Agreement. They traveled all over the world, which we can't do right now, by the way. So part of that governance of what you're saying, how do we create that momentum and that mobilization of governments is going to have to change. But that was how they did it. And then let's not forget the terrorist attacks several weeks beforehand. And what happened as a response, I was working for His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales at that time. And I remember a very distinct conversation between him and also Obama, who were both considering whether they should come because of security issues. And everyone, including David Attenborough and all the others who came and descended on Paris, decided that this was going to be the face of a all of the voices against terrorism and the need to have international collaboration. That's what we need now. Coming out of COVID, we need to remember, we need to keep in our memory and then to structure it in terms of our negotiations, that we have collaborated in many cases, that yes, those seven governments led by women that have all done the right thing and that have keep, kept the rates down, that we should learn from that that we should look at new economies, some of which are starting to look through in terms of the well-being economy and the WeGov initiatives, that we have the solutions in the way in which we can restructure. But most importantly, and that's what Paris did, was keeping that kind of, wow, we're in this together alive. During the entire Paris conference, everyone felt like they were something big. They were part of something. We were working together, non-state actors and state actors. And that's what has to happen. So this leadership that we saw last weekend coupled up with, and let's remember that we had both Bush and Obama, the former wives of the former presidents speaking together, that in itself gave a political message. And we need to do the same and across Europe as well. The best thing we have right now across Europe is the Green Deal. The European Green Deal is a cross-political agreement. And I think that if we can really bring together that goodwill across parties and not politicize, which is exactly what Trump is doing, the post-COVID exit, then we will actually come out much stronger. Excellent. And with the Green New Deal uh, for Europe, as you, you mentioned, there's obviously a delay because of, of where we are just now. Are you still confident that we'll see that progress? Because obviously the, the progress that was being made was very impressive and, and exciting to see. Yet we're also seeing, as, as I think you would do in any crisis, some of the strains on, on the EU in terms of balancing national priorities and, and pan-European cooperation. Do you feel confident that the, the Green New Deal will continue to advance and that we'll see that make the difference we'd hoped it would? 
Absolutely, and I've been part of the recovery conversations at the highest level inside the European Commission and also with governments. And um, I know that now the recovery package has actually been postponed to the first week of May. It was supposed to be released next week. That's not because they don't know what they need to do next and the links between the Green Deal and the recovery, but more exactly, as you say, to ensure that all of the member states are in sync. And, and the difficulty there is, yes, we're dealing with different types of economies. We're dealing, and this is where the politics come in again. Can we bring all of Europe's member states together, including, by the way, even if Britain has left the UK at this time of crisis? From a security perspective, it would be ridiculous for the UK not to be part of the conversation. That, that makes absolutely no sense. In any case, we already have our conversations with Norway and Iceland and, and our other neighbors who are part of the European agreement if they're not part of the European Union. So we need to ensure that we move in this together. But yes, there are different sizes of governments. There are different countries that got hit differently. And, and that we need to think of very carefully. In particular, in terms of the link with the European Green Deal, there will be some postponement in a few areas, but not in all areas. And I think that's okay, at least from my perspective, although some more radical environmentalists would say it's not okay, it's not ambitious enough. I think we really do need to come back to what's the most essential now. Let's focus on health. But let's make sure that when we have health in our mind, we build in those structures that are fundamentally underpinning the link between people, planet and prosperity to ensure that we don't have those future zoonic viruses, which is what actually we are saying is the pandemic. It's a zoonic virus, a virus that is passed from animals to people. And what we will say comes from the fact that we are a very full planet, overpopulated, that is not respecting the planetary boundaries. So if we go back and restructure an economy, a system, whether it be in Europe or anywhere else, that reflects the past, we're just going to continue to have more crises. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I completely agree. And I think in many ways, this COVID crisis is, uh, is, has been a huge shock to our system, but it could be even worse. And the reality is, as you say, the growth of zoonic diseases with the, the conditions that we have for spread. I mean, people like Laurie Garrett have been talking about this for, for decades in terms of pandemics are, in a sense, always inevitable. Yes. Exactly. You know, we could be we could be seeing much uh, more deadly or, or challenging conditions ahead. And this is our chance to really learn from and, and build from that moving forward. Sandrine, I could quite happily talk to you all day. And I think it's it's fascinating to see the challenges, but also this sense of optimism if we proactively create that space. Um, it's, it's not something that will happen magically, I think. There will always be those pressures to try and go back to business as usual. But actually, as we found in recent polling from the RCA, as we're seeing in many of the discussions uh, that are taking place, people don't want that to happen, even if it were possible. And maybe this is our chance to, to fundamentally rethink how we operate as a society, as a planet, as an economy. 
Um, just as a kind of closing off, um, these are challenging times and we know that they're having impacts on people. I wondered if you had any, I know you're incredibly busy, so you probably don't get much time to to try and um, step back from all of this, but given that people are, are sharing many of their tips and ideas for how they choose to relax in a time of uh, isolation and, and lockdown, I wondered if you had any particular kind of uh, things that are helping you get through this and, and look after yourself and your own family or any particular resources you'd recommend we, uh, we take a look at? Absolutely. Um, the first is that in the beginning of the crisis, I was getting incredibly, increasingly more stressed. Um, also, because I was in front of my screen 12 hours a day, taking up Zooms where we should have been having conferences. So there were a variety of different um, areas where I felt really disconnected. One is disconnected from that energy of people because we are all separated from each other, although I'm very lucky I have my family here with me. Um, the second was feeling that I was getting all of this negative energy from electronic products in front of me all the time and IT. And, and then the third is not getting out enough into nature. Um, so the way that I've resolved that is every single day I go for a walk. Um, and we've been incredibly lucky, all of us in Northern Europe, to have beautiful weather. I think this is Mother Nature's way of not compounding the pain, but instead showing us how beautiful nature can still be. I also have been uh, meditating 40 minutes in the morning and doing very deep breathing exercises in order to release some of that stress. And, and then the, the third is that I've been talking about it to people. And I think that, as you say, actually, the first minister and her honesty of saying this brings tears to my eyes. Sometimes I sob with friends, with family, even with colleagues, because now we're all sharing each other's lives, as many of us have small kids on the screen when you're talking to each other or other things, um, dogs and pets and everything else, is to talk about the pain, to talk about how difficult it is, um, and, and to recognize that it's okay to feel pain. And one of the reasons why I think we're going through this is to feel pain. It's to remind us just how important it is to go back to the things that we really value and to put a value on the most precious things in our lives, to be able to go out in nature, to be with people, in particular those that we love, and not to just overconsume and buy material goods and, and go too fast and do too many things and pack our lives with so much in order to pad the pain because the pain will never go away. And the best way actually to get rid of the pain is to get all that love, all that nature, all that breathing back into our lives. So this is one of the things that I hope now, granted, again, there are people that are stuck with seven to 10 to four people in one room who may not be able to have the same reflection as I've been able to have. I totally get that. Or in abusive relationships or suffering already from anxiety, which this has only exacerbated. And, and so for those people, my heart really goes out to all of you, those of you who are listening. Um, and I'm really hopeful that somehow coming out of this, we can alleviate some of your own personal pain. Fantastic. And I think if we can, if we can find that as our new way of being, then I think we'll see that uh, shape and influence across everything we do in society and definitely help us create a much better world out of this. 
Sandrine, thank you so much for your contributions today. Um, it's always inspiring and, and informative to talk to you. And I look forward to the opportunities to see how you take these policies forward and how hopefully we and others can support and contribute to those. For everyone watching, I'd highly recommend you check out uh, the Club of Rome's website where you'll be able to find more details uh, and more depth on the policy proposals that have been made and obviously the, the decades of excellent work that the, the club has been doing. Uh, and also I know that Twitter is quite often a great place to connect with people. So uh, you can look up Sundrine on there at SD Declave and also I'm on at Jamie A. Cook if you want to get in touch and follow up on this discussion and debate as we move forward. But certainly on behalf of Sundrine and I, I'd like to say thank you to you all for joining us. Take care, stay safe out there. And we'll look forward to taking some of these positive new ideas forward as we move from ego to eco in future. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.